Uh, for the rest of you guys, good morning. Welcome to uh, Aletheia Church. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're glad that you are here with us uh, this morning. Uh, we are about six or seven weeks into our study of the Gospel of John, which we have entitled Seeing Jesus because uh, to put it quite plainly, that's exactly the goal of John's gospel. He wants us to see Jesus of Nazareth for who he really is, the Son of God in the flesh who died in our place for our sins and rose again to rescue and save us and redeem us. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us since we started the study or you haven't gotten one yet and you would like a scripture journal uh, so you can follow along with us, just raise your hand. That's a free gift to you. There's nothing else attached to it. We would love to give you one of those just so you can follow along and keep notes um, if you like. And if you've got your scripture journal or your Bible, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, as you probably can already gather from our scripture reading this morning, our passage is probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible. Um, go ahead and throw that picture up on the screen for me that I sent you guys this past week. How many of you guys know this guy? Yeah. Yes. Every, every Christian's favorite idol. Um, joke, jokes aside, right? This is Timmy, Timmy Tebow, right? And... After, uh, in 2010, in the BCS uh, championship game, uh, he wrote John 3.16 on his eye black, and some 90 million people looked up that verse on Google at some point during the game. Um, I even remember as a kid, not being a Christian, I tell people all the time that my family's primary religion was youth soccer, that we spent our Sundays on, uh, at the altar of the soccer field. But even as a kid, I had this verse memorized. That whether you grew up religious or grew up a Christian or not, more than likely you have heard some variation of these verses at some point in your life as somebody told you that God loved you. And what I find interesting about this passage this morning is that even people that would claim to be atheists or agnostic or not know God or to be unsure of where they stand spiritually, they would probably hear someone read John chapter 3 verses 16 and 7 and say, yeah, I can digest that. I can accept that. God loves me. Cool. I'm down with that. That very much fits the cultural ethos of, of what we live in today is this idea of, of love no matter what and all the time. And yet verses 18 through 21 are rarely talked about. So often we want the beauty and the truth of verses 16 and 17 without the truth and the reality that's attached to it in verses 18 through 21. And I think there's some reasons for that. See, John forces us to reckon with and consider some difficult truths. If you sit there and think honestly and say, well, I want the love of God. I want to experience that love in a way that I never have before. The reality is, is what we read here, though, also asks us to honestly examine our lives and consider who we truly are. I want to make a quick note on this passage before we dive in this morning, because some of you might find this confusing. You'll notice in the ESV, which is the version that we read from, or if you have a red letter Bible, that these verses may be in red. 
this morning. And there's some debate amongst biblical scholars on whether these are Jesus's words to Nicodemus as a continuation of what he had been saying to Nicodemus, or whether this is John's summary of Jesus's teaching to Nicodemus. And I, I, I wrestle with whether even to share this with you, but I think one of the things I try to do consistently from this stage is show like, hey, there are times when we don't know everything about the Bible that we're trying to interpret it to the best of our ability. And I would say that personally, I believe that these words belong to John. I think that this is John's summary of what he heard transpire between Jesus and Nicodemus. It fits much of the language he uses, especially in his epistles, if you've read 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. And this gospel account that he has written Oftentimes when we can clearly see John is summarizing something or placing his own thoughts into the word of God here, we see similar language and purpose as we see here in verses 16 through 21. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to John chapter 20 with me really quickly, I've said that regularly John gives us the thesis and the purpose behind his entire writing of this gospel in verses 30 through 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so either way, whether these are the words of Jesus to Nicodemus or whether this is John's summary of Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus, this is still God's word. And what we see here in verses 16 through 21 is an important summary of Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus. Now, Pastor Daniel taught last week on that passage, and I'm not going to go in depth on that, but I do want us to look at verses 14 and 15 because they set up everything that we read this morning in our text. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Last week, Pastor Daniel shared with us that Jesus is recalling Numbers chapter 21 to Nicodemus. And what he's explaining to him is his entire mission and why he is here in the first place. Nicodemus has called Jesus a great teacher and he wants to follow him, but he's unsure of what Jesus's mission is to do. And Jesus has explained to Nicodemus that he must be born again. And Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand what he's talking about. And he tells Nicodemus that he must be born again of water and the spirit and that he must follow after Jesus to be born again. And Nicodemus is clearly struggling with this idea. And so Jesus runs to an example in Numbers 21 that Nicodemus would be familiar with and understand. And he says, remember how the people of God had been liberated from slavery in Egypt and how God had brought them out. And once God had brought them out of that slavery, what did they do? They grumbled and they complained. 
and they desired to return to Egypt. And so God sent serpents who began to bite these ungrateful Israelites and they started to die. And so the people cried out, God, save us, God, save us. And Moses is like, what, what do I do, God? And God says, what you'll do is you'll raise up this bronze serpent and you will have God's people look at it and those who look at it will be saved. And what we see Jesus teaching here is that God saved wicked Israel by having them look at the serpent in the desert. And it wasn't the serpent that saved them, but it was trusting in God by looking to the serpent that would save them. And Jesus is saying, in the same way, God will not just save Israel from their own wickedness, but he will save the entire world by raising me up, having people look to me and trusting me in their life and death for salvation. Now, the question that inevitably comes as we see God rescue his people in Numbers 21, and as we see God promise to rescue again here in John 3, is why? Why would God do such a thing? And that's exactly what John sets out to do once we get to verse 16. Because we see one of the most beautiful truths in all of scripture. God chooses to rescue the world because he loves you. You know, John wrote this section to answer a deep question that so many of us might ask. Can I be certain that I am loved? Can I be certain that the God of the universe cares about me and loves me? And John's simple answer to that question is, yes, you can. Believe in him that you may have life and be born again. And so two points this morning that I want us to see. You guys know how I am. I love to have my little points. The first one is this. We're going to see John's proof that God loves us, the proof of God's love. And then we're going to be challenged in the second half by John himself by asking the question, what do I love? What do you love? So let's look again at John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we'll begin to unpack the proof of God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I would guess that everyone in here at some point in time has struggled to believe that God loves them. At least if you're honest with yourself for longer than 30 seconds. And there are reasons for that, right? You know, often we are acutely aware of our own shortcomings. And as you see your life and you 
live your life, you become more aware of how you fall short of even your own standard, much less God's. And you begin to question, how could God love someone like me? Or maybe, maybe it's not even the reality of examining your own shortcomings. Maybe someone else in your life has abused you, treated you terribly. And so it makes believing that God might love you difficult because you haven't experienced it here. Many of us, even if we are professing disciples of Jesus, struggle at times to believe things we know the Bible says are for sure true that God loves us. Does God really love me even when I sin? How can I be sure? We play this game where We go back and forth and we might experience a high, high where we might experience emotionally the love of God. And then when we sin or circumstances may arise in our lives that are difficult, we struggle to believe that God might love us. And we go back and forth between playing this game. Some of you guys might've played it as a kid, right? Where you would pick a flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And it's silly to play that game as a kid, right, with a flower, but how often do we do that with the God of the universe? You know, I had a friend when I first arrived in Gainesville a little over 11 years ago. He was a pastor of a church here in town, and he and his wife were in the process of adopting a child. And this child had been through a lot of trauma. His family had abandoned him on multiple occasions. And when, when they finally adopted him, the first two or three days when he was in their home were, were just amazing. He, for the first time in his life, he had parents He was beyond excited. And then after about a week or so, as I was sitting down with him over breakfast and asking him how he was doing and how I could be praying for him, he's like, we're we're having a really hard time at home. You know, my son has experienced so much trauma and been rejected so much in his life by the people around him that he can't believe that his mother and I would truly love him. So he's acting out and lashing out and acting in all these different ways because he can't fathom or understand or comprehend the reality that we would choose to love him just because we choose to do so. That we've adopted him, not because of anything he's done, but just because we want him. This boy's entire life up until about age five, had been marked by a lack of assurance that he was worthy of love by anyone in his life. And yet my friend and his wife persevered and had the privilege of over time reassuring this young boy, we love you. You're my son. I care for you. Today that kid is nearly 16 years old, thriving with his parents going to go to college in a couple years and knows that he's loved by his parents. Friends, so often we examine our lives and I think we feel like the young boy from my friend's adoption. Does God really love me? We lack assurance and believe God's love is circumstantial like so much of what the world gives us. And John says, no. 
God's love is so much better than that. He loves you and let me tell you how I know. So we got three things that John shows us that make God's love so great. The first one is this. God's love is unearned and every and for everyone who would believe. Right, you'll notice there in verse 16 that, that John starts out by saying, for God, and John intentionally leads with that language because he wants us to see God chose to love not because we are worthy, but because he is love. John actually says this later in one of his epistles, but shared right after this illustration of of Numbers 21 by Jesus, God chose to love and rescue Israel, not based on their actions, but because he had chosen them. And in the same way, God rescues us through Jesus, not because of our worthiness, but because he loves us. You cannot earn God's love. And friends, that is good news. For if you were able to earn it, it might be about you. But because he has chosen to love, it makes it perfect. Now, not only does John revealed to us that God has chosen us solely based upon his choice to love us. But he says something here that would have struck the Jewish listener probably a little bit more than it strikes us. He says, for God so loved the world. Right, a Jewish believer would have had no problems with the concept that God loved them because they were Jewish. God had chosen them. They were God's chosen people. But this world that this word that John uses for the world kind of has two uh, separate connotations attached to it in the Greek. One, it means the whole of humanity. And when it's frequently used without scripture, it doesn't just mean mankind. It means mankind and their condition, which in, unveiled in scripture is that mankind is sinful and ungodly and has rejected God. So when John's speaking here, what he's unveiling to us is he says, hey, God chose not Israel, the world, and not just the world that is amazing and the people that might be great in God's eyes or living the right way. No, he chooses the world. He chose to love the unlovable. And what this means then is not only is this love for those that don't deserve it, but this revelation is no longer just for Israel. All can come to him. God's love is so great because he chose us even when he had no reason to. Meaning you can't do anything to make him unchoose you. He loves you simply because he wants to. Now, I'll I'll be honest, that's hard for me to comprehend a little bit because so much of life is wrapped up in earning someone's attention or affections. 
And yet John says, with the God of the universe, that's not the case. Which inevitably leads to internal questioning. How do I know? Right, congratulations, Kevin. You can read. How can I know this is true? Which leads us to the second thing that John unveils to us about how God's love is so great. God's love comes with assurance. See, it can be hard to trust that God could love us sometimes, right? Reality of life gets in the way. It's hard to believe that God could love me and I could have cancer. It's hard to believe that God could love me and suffering could exist. It's hard to believe that God loves me and my significant other broke up with me. It's hard to believe that God loves me and my life is in shambles. And John says, don't look to your life to know whether God loves you or not. He says, here is how you can be sure that he gave his only son. He surrendered the life of Jesus to die for us. Friends, this matters. Right? It's one of the reasons why I say like so often, like, you know, I, I love apologetics and I can get in debates, but one of the things I think is so important that we just remember, either Jesus Christ is who he said he is or he was not. And if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and if he really did come and live and die, nothing else matters. Because what John is sharing here is that because of Jesus, God has proven once and for all that he loves us. Right? Go over to Colossians chapter one if you have a Bible. I want you to just pause and think about this because I think it's easy for us sometimes to have heard this truth over and over again, especially if you grew up in the church, that God loves you and it's demonstrated in the fact that Jesus died for you and not understand the weightiness of that. So look at how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus to us in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was created. It means he's first in rank. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Guys, Jesus is just not some carpenter from Nazareth. 
He is the pre-existing son of God. And for the father to have laid down the life of his son for your behalf, I submit to you, there could be no greater act of love ever displayed. This is why John, excuse me, why Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus coming, dying, and raising from the dead is God's great declaration of his love for you. Let me maybe share an illustration. I'm not sure how this is going to land. I shared it with Jackie earlier this week, and she's like, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but give it a shot. Right, because you sit here and say like, you can know that God loves you because of Jesus. Here, here's how I know. Okay, so my wife and I, we, we grew up in very different homes. We have very different relationship with money. Money was always tight in her family. My family kind of always had enough and had what it needed. And so it kind of leads to us approaching how we spend a little bit differently. If you're not catching the, the glimpse, I'm the spender. Okay. And so by God's grace, we, we've worked together over the course of our 13 years in marriage and kind of figured out how to make this work. And one of the good things was, is we didn't have any money for a long time, so I couldn't spend any. But what, when we did have money, Jackie was not interested in spending it pretty much ever. I'd be like, hey, like, can we have dinner? No. I'm exaggerating a little bit. And so but by the time our 10th anniversary came around, we decided we, want to go to, we wanted to go to Europe. We were going to go to England. My sister and my brother-in-law live in London. We were going to visit them. I was going to go watch God's favorite soccer team, Liverpool, play in Liverpool. My wife was not going to join me, but was instead going to go watch a Broadway show. Like there was just all sorts of things we, we, we had decided. And so we paid for this trip. We, we flew the plane. And I'll be honest, I was kind of wrought with anxiety heading into the trip because here was my fear. We had spent all this money on this trip on plane tickets and places to stay because we were going to go to Paris and train tickets and bus fares and all this, all these different things. And I was worried. I know how my wife is that when we start spending money that she thinks we don't have, she's going to stop everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we, like we have flown to Europe to starve. <laughs> like, I, like I know it. And, and so I'm like, like, she said she wanted to have this good time on this trip, but having a good time is going to cost some money. And so we're probably not going to have a good time. And here's the thing. We got there and we spent money. We had a great time. Liverpool thrashed the team. I watched 5 nothing. It was awesome. We ate really, really good meals. We spent more money probably in a week than we had in a long, long time. Probably since we'd bought our house. And I shared that example because of this. My wife had invested so much into that trip. Why would she then allow us to not enjoy our time there? All right, here's, here's where it connects. I promise it does. 
if God has given up so much to display his love for you and liberate, what could you possibly do to undo that? Your salvation costs the life of his son. What greater price could be paid? You think he's ready to throw it all away because you cursed somebody? Because you gave in to sin yet again? No. You can be assured of God's love for you because he paid the ultimate price for you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. In the same way that God invested the life of his son to rescue you and redeem you, what more could he possibly do to prove his love for you? So God's love is so great because it is assured of in the work of Christ. And then lastly, if we look at verses 16 and 17, God's love is so great because it fully saves and transforms us. We see in verse 17 that God's love saves us from our sin. And then he said back in 16 that we should not perish, but have eternal life through Jesus. See, God's mission was to save us from perishing, not save us from some bad decisions. No, save us from death. And God's love saves in two ways, right? John describes it there as eternal life, but eternal life in scripture doesn't mean just one thing. It means in the future, yes, we will spend eternity with God, but it means in the present that our lives are being transformed into the image of Christ because that's what eternal life is. Jesus doesn't purchase you by his blood and then say, hey, I can't wait to do a good work in you later. No, he begins that work at the moment of salvation to transform you into the image of Christ. Eternal life through the power and work of the Holy Spirit leads us to full life now. God loves you because he chose to. God loves you and proved it through sending Jesus to die for you. And that love saves and transforms. Now, so often, right, it's so great to end right there. And yet, John doesn't finish there. No, he basically... And the next four verses is going to stare us down and look at us and say, so what do you love? God shows that he loves you. What do you love? Let me read verses 18 through 21 for us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
John presents us first with the love and mission of Jesus and God's love for us in him. And then he shows us the world's response and he uses an illustration of light and darkness. And I want you to notice John's challenge to us, the reader, as we read this. He says, light has come into the world. Right, so he's harking back onto the incarnation of Jesus where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But if you remember in John chapter one, there was a picture of darkness in creation and then God spoke and there was light. And John talked about this in John chapter one, starting in verse five, when verse four and five, when he says Jesus is that ultimate light. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So here is what John is saying. In the same way that the creation was full of darkness and then God spoke and there was light and life began, the same is true of the human race until Jesus shows up on the scene. that the world is in darkness until Jesus arrives. And then he says this, Jesus has arrived and that light is here and yet people loved darkness rather than light. And that seems silly, why? And John tells us, because their works are evil. See, sin has enslaved mankind and people love doing evil. Hear me when I say this. This is going to be hard to swallow. We are not good people who do bad things. We're evil people and we love it. I know that's not going to win me the most viral downloads for the week. certainly not going to make me popular in this town. But the Bible teaches that we are not good people who just occasionally do bad things, but we are actually wicked, evil people, and we love our wickedness. And worse yet, not only do we love our wickedness and love the darkness rather than the light, according to John, but but those who do not believe in Jesus hate the light. Right? Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Why? The Bible is telling me that I'm wicked and that I'm in darkness. Why would I hate the light? And the, and the answer is simple. You don't want the reality of who you are to really be exposed. See, if one believes in the gospel of Jesus, shame and conviction are a reality. There is no good news of God's love in Christ without the bad news of who each and every one of us really are. We cannot herald the love and light of God if we don't first reckon with the reality of our own wickedness. 
And John says, as the light came into the world, as Jesus unveiled himself to the world around us, that unbelievers don't want that. And it's tragic, but the reality is this. Many would rather live in a lie that they are okay than be forced to confront the reality that they're far more wicked than they dare imagine. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Because verse 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is one of the most misinterpreted passages in Scripture that I see a lot of times. Because people will say, See, John is saying that you have to be a good follower of Jesus and do the right thing in order to be loved by God. And that's not what John is saying at all here. Now see, what John is saying is that those that believe in Jesus, those that look to him on the cross, the way the Israelites looked to the bronze servant for salvation from death and perishing, they come to the light, not on their own merit, but on the merit of Jesus. He says that in humility, our wickedness is exposed and our evil is brought into the light for who it truly is. And we don't care because, and he says this, that his works have been carried out in God. Let me translate that for you. Those that believe in Jesus do not care that they are exposed to the world around them because God's love is greater than their sin and wickedness. You don't have to rely on your own works or how you look to others because God looks at you and sees the finished work of Christ in you. Your works are Jesus's works if you have believed in Christ. And Christians, let me just pause for a moment because I know we have some in here this morning that are believers and some that are not. Christians, let me just speak to you for a moment. If we understand this passage correctly, here's what it should say to us. We should never be known as arrogant know-it-alls who fake perfect living. We are only saved because we have first been exposed as the sinful darkness lovers we truly are trusting in the finished work of Jesus as our work for salvation. And we are rescued because of the love of God, not because of our knowledge. And so John gives us two options. You can be exposed, your sin, your shortcomings, your failures, and let Jesus' work save you from perishing or you can remain in the dark letting your works be hidden and let me just say something for a second you're not fooling anyone when you hide in the darkness you may be able to fool a few people around you but you're not fooling yourself and you're definitely not fooling the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of the universe. 
You can remain there in the dark, broken and confused, or you can bring it into the light. I love how Tony Morita illustrates John's point. He says, John only gives us two options. We can believe and run to the light in Jesus like a moth to a flame, or we can deny and scurry into the darkness like a cockroach. I don't, I don't know where you guys are this morning. Some of you I know, some of you I've never even had a conversation with. Hi, I'm Kevin, by the way. Hear this. God loves you. It may not feel like it. it may not feel it from those around you. but I know for a fact he loves you because he sent Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And as the light invaded the darkness, he was lifted up on a cross so that he might die in your place for your sin. And he rose again, putting to open shame, death and Satan, so that you might not perish but have eternal life. God's love is proven through Jesus's life. His love unearned for everyone, guaranteed and salvific. And so here's the question. What do you love? Will you turn on the lights? going to get real dark in here. I want you to sit in this for just a second. Your eyes might adjust a little bit because there's some light breaking in in a few places. But the scripture teaches that this is the reality of each and every one of us. that our sinfulness and our pride and our stubbornness leads us to live in this very state. You guys know how much I like to move. I'm petrified to take a step on this stage right now. And yet if we will humble ourselves and believe in Jesus, doesn't have to be this way. If we turn to the light, you can cut the lights back on. Confess and repent of sin. And, and I'll be honest with you, it's painful. It's painful to be exposed you're exposing yourself to one who loves you. Who gave his only son for you. And he promises that in Christ he loves you, he forgives you, and he saved you. 